Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Our church anniversary, as joyful as it is, as wonderful as it is, it actually comes on the heels of, of, of some very big the troubling news from the Christian world. First of all, we begin with Joshua Harris, who was the author of the best-selling book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And he was one of the pioneers of the purity movements in the church during the late 1990s and had a huge influence on an entire generation. And not only that, he became the senior pastor of Covenant Life Church in Maryland up until 2015. In 2015, Joshua actually stepped down as a senior pastor, citing his need to go to seminary because he'd never really been formally trained for ministry and he was beginning to struggle with his, with his theology. Then in 2016, Joshua began to apologize for the message of purity that was found in his books. And then in 2018, he formally disavowed all of his teachings and writings and and the purity message in his books. And he actually uh, called them harmful and began to call for the end of the publication. And then just a few months ago, Joshua Harris and his wife separated and filed for divorce. And then a few weeks ago, Joshua Harris declared that he had fallen away from the faith and no longer considers himself to be a Christian. But, But not only that... He now is publicly endorsing and affirming the LGBT community and lifestyle and recently attended a a gay pride event in Canada and made public appearances with some prominent LGBT leaders there. As Paul has mentioned before, it would seem like he's made shipwreck of his faith. And if that's not heart-wrenching enough, then this is followed by the story of a veteran worship leader and songwriter, Marty Sampson of Hillsong, where he publicly declared that he was losing his faith. This is a man who's been writing and hit contemporary Christian songs for decades. He's been leading worship for thousands and thousands of people for decades. And what is troubling is he's not even sad about it. In fact, in the Christian Post, they quote him in what he wrote in his Instagram. He says, time for real talk. I am genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I am happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. Joshua Harris likewise expressed his sense of of happiness walking away from his faith. In his own Instagram post, he wrote, To my, my Christian friends, I'm grateful for your prayers. Don't take it personally if I don't immediately return your calls. I can't join in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. 
I feel very much alive, awake, and surprisingly hopeful. Here are two men who have been part of prominent church movements, not for years, but for decades. People who have been leaders in their churches for decades. People who have been, who have been leading spiritually other people for decades. And they walk away from their fear, from their face with, with no tears. They walk away from their face with no sorrow. But instead with happiness and joy and even hope. How is that even possible? It's possible really for two important reasons. First of all, when someone walks away from their faith and they feel relief, the reason why they can feel relief is that they've been not living by the Spirit of God, but a life of legalism. You see, when when someone is a false convert to the faith, they don't experience the life-giving freedom that comes from Christ. What I mean by freedom is the freedom that one experiences from the condemnation of their sin. For there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and also from the power of sin over their lives. You see, in Christ, we don't use our freedom, as Paul says, for the, to, as an occasion to sin. I mean, we do fall into sin, but we don't willfully follow sin. We use our freedom to be free from sin and, and to walk lovingly by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us and by faith in obedience to Christ. And if a person is a false believer, they do not possess that power. They're not free from the guilt of their sin. They're not free from the power of sin. And all of that, all that's left for them then, is simply to pretend, to to fake it, to try to live in obedience to Christ by their own power rather than the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the very definition of legalism. It's also the definition of hypocrisy. And so naturally when someone walks away from the faith, they feel relief and even joy because the pressure to live by these rules and this system suddenly has come off of them. And you, will, and you will hear people say, well, I feel like the real me has emerged. And that is the truth. The real you had emerged. That real person did. Because they've been living a lie the whole time. That's why legalism is so dangerous. It can cause people to believe that there's something that they're not. But in the end, it always breaks down. Because nobody can bear the pressure and the load of their own spiritual life forever. Being a true Christian... He's taking all of your trust and your hope and placing it completely and totally onto Christ and not yourself. And it is believing in who He is and trusting in His finished work to not only save you from the penalty of your sin, but from the power of sin as well. And understanding that only God, the Holy Spirit, can change you and bring you into obedience to Christ. And yes, we absolutely should pursue spiritual disciplines, but the proof that you truly belong to God isn't the fact that you keep a set of rules or that you look the part. The proof is that you continually trust in Christ. And that trust is manifested in a continual repentance of sin and a continual belief in the gospel. Only true faith in Christ can save us and change us. That's the first 
reason. Secondly, and more importantly, the reason why people like this will fall away with no regrets is simply because these men and many other people like them have rejected the authority of the foundation on which that they were to build their entire life, which is the Word of God. They've rejected the authority of Scripture. That foundationally is the issue, by the way. They've rejected the authority, the inerrancy, and sufficient, sufficient nature of the Word of God. And what is worse is, is their positions as church leaders was never based on their ability to rightly understand and affirm and preach the truth of God's Word, but rather it was based either on their talent or their personality or, or both. Marty Sampson is a brilliant musician. He's written multiple hit contemporary Christian songs that made it to, to secular charts. He knows how to capture and express deep emotions and move entire crowds of people emotionally. Joshua Harris was a creative communicator who tapped into a cultural problem of team dating and he offered a solution that seemed biblical that captured the imagination of an entire generation. How many of you have ever heard of the thing called a purity ring? Right? Many of you know people who've had purity rings. The reason why? It's because of him. It's because of what he's done. These men's leadership qualities seem to be based on their ability to connect with a big audience rather than their proficiency with the Word of God. Which, by the way, is what John Cooper, the lead singer of the Christian heavy metal group, which seems like an odd expression put together, right? But he's the, he's the, the lead singer of the Christian heavy metal group, Skillet, and what he's been saying for years. In an article that's published August 13, he said, my conclusion for the church, all of us Christians, is we must stop making worship leaders and thought leaders or influencers or cool people or relevant people the most influential people in Christendom. Which is exactly what's happened here. Both Josh and Marty were cool and relevant and, and they were influencers and they had talent for connecting with people and, and large church movements grew up around them and all that did was affirm who they thought that they were as Christian leaders. In effect, turning them into Christian celebrities. And this was based on their talents and not their commitment to Scripture. And, and understand, as a culture, we do this all the time. Even us Christians do this all the time. We will listen to preachers and ministers and worship leaders online of the people that we think are really the cat's meow. And then we'll end up listening to a select few group of influential people who, you know, for, and we look to them for answers rather than going to the Word of God itself for answers. Like Lauren Daigle, an amazing young singer. If you've not heard her sing, you've, you're missing something. An incredible vocalist and able to evoke deep emotions in her music. I mean, like, the first time I heard her sing her song, You Say, like, I had goosebumps from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. She is an incredible talent. And she was being looked at really quickly as a prominent Christian leader, and she was given a platform early on to speak truth. But, but theologically, she was very immature. And this was exposed as she struggled to defend the biblical notion of marriage. And she, and she, was, and she capitulated, and now the culture itself has embraced her as one of them. Christians in America... <laughs> Just like the rest of the rest of the, the crowd, we, we love our celebrities. But John Cooper says, 
very pointedly, it is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the Word and to value the teaching of the Word. We need to value truth over feelings, truth over emotions. And what we need, and what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth and who have led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth. That church family is the root of the problem. He continues and says, and it is, is it any wonder that some of our disavowed Christian leaders are letting go of their absolute truth of the Bible and subsequently their lives are falling apart? Joshua Harris's words strike really shallow to me that he's happy and surprisingly hopeful and joyful as his family is being destroyed in the process. Cooper further exhorts, brothers and sisters in the faith all around the world, pastors, teachers, worship leaders, influencers, I implore you, please, please, in your search for relevancy for the gospel, let us not find creative ways to shape God's word into the image of our culture by stifling inconvenient truths. But rather let us hold on even tighter to the anchor of the living word of God, for he changes not. And then he cites Isaiah 40, uh, verse 8. He says, The grass, grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. I know that my strike is odd. I've quoted many theologians in my time as a pastor, but never a heavy metal band leader. But he speaks the truth. This is certainly a difficult and troubling time in the church. But the thing that we need to understand is that this is not new. People have been falling into error and falling away for years. This is not new. In fact, during our 81-year history, our church has seen many people come to real faith in the Lord. We have, our church has, has spread the gospel all over the world. Our church has seen lives changed and, and people's lives made whole. But our church has also seen its share of people fall away including some of the children of the pastors that are on the wall in our hallway, and maybe even a couple of the pastors themselves. And our church itself has fallen at times into deep theological error more than once. Last year, we, we, we've, as we prepared for the 80th anniversary, I got a chance to spend some time reading the, uh, the old church records, and it was really informative and there was a lot of stuff that was hope-inspiring, like June Vickers, her prayer journals. We found those. And I'm just going to tell you, if there's something that will affirm your belief in the power of prayer, it would be that. I mean, she remembered everything, and she prayed for everyone, and she recorded every answered prayer. It was, it was inspiring and uplifting, but there's also a lot of stuff that we, we uncovered that was heartbreaking. Like notes from, from meetings from this church that record how terribly Christians in the same church family can treat each other. And, and, and even more troubling is it, we, we found records of some of the associations that this church has had. I don't know if you know this, but First Baptist Church at one time belonged to the American Baptist Convention. The American Baptist Convention is one of the most liberal denominations in America. In fact, American Baptist churches currently are permitting uh, their pastors to perform same-sex marriages, and they ordain LGBT people to the clergy. Our church also was heavily influenced by members of the Masonic Lodge here in Boron. 
And for whatever a person might feel or know about secret societies like, like, like the Masons, all those groups, what's important to understand is they are all rooted in some form in the occult. They're pagan and Gnostic in their origins. And the, the, the message of the gospel and, and those messages do not, don't coexist very well. And there's even a time when our church was leaning very heavily toward what's called the emergent church movement, which was a liberal movement that, that really affirms the inspiration of scripture but denies its inerrancy and its sufficiency. And it also, this, that emergent movement downplays the importance of the role of the local church in the life of the believer. And, and so this confusion and falling away that, that, that can happen individually and, and corporately is not new, not even for us. But the truth is, as troubling as those things are, this is as old as Christianity itself. You see, when Paul wrote this letter, this, this text in, in 2 Timothy, he wrote this specifically for a reason. It's not there just so we know that the Word of God is the Word of God. There's a reason why he wrote it. You see, what you need to realize is the church in Ephesus, like our own church, had a long but also very complicated history. The church saw its share of victories and also its share of difficulties. The church itself was probably founded by Priscilla and Aquila, um, a prominent and, um, and influential uh, Christian couple in the New Testament, very close friends of Paul. And, and they're mentioned multiple times in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. Uh, but they shared the gospel everywhere they went, and including Ephesus, and a church began to pop up because of that. And this church then, uh, started by them, was strengthened by the Apostle Paul, who himself spent a little over three years pastoring this church and training up its, its leaders. And it was that church that Paul ends up writing one of our favorite letters, which is the letter to the Ephesians, where he deals with issues of church unity um, and the function of the church and what it means for, for the members of the church to all be in ministry together. And, and, and it's also from Ephesians where we get our favorite verses on salvation, for you're saved by grace through faith. This church was later on pastored by the Apostle John. So you talk about a a rich history. And, 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 and through, and, and John wrote, you know, uh, his gospel, first and second, third letters of John, and then he also wrote the book of Revelation. And in that letter, Jesus, speaking through him, mentions the church of Ephesus. In fact, in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, we read um, Jesus' words. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works of what you did first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. An ominous warning to be sure, but we see in this, this, even this section here a reference to Ephesus' rich, faithful history, but also to the difficulties that it had faced in the past. Ephesus had a long history of faithfulness, but it also had its history of, of error. And at, at, at one point, the church itself in Ephesus was so sideways 
Because the church had allowed several unqualified people to be elevated to church leadership, and they began to, to, to lead the congregation away you know, into dire heresy. And so the Apostle Paul, after he was released from his first Roman imprisonment, he went and he visited the church, and he was so disturbed by what he saw, he couldn't just like give him a few words of encouragement and go his way. He ended up leaving his young protege, Timothy, to be the pastor there. He put Timothy in charge to make things right. And so Paul, when we, when we read the first letter to Timothy, what we're seeing is him giving very clear instructions of what Timothy needs to do. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to put an end to the false teaching in the church. Number two, he needs to change the leadership and raise up qualified, biblically qualified elders and, and deacons in leadership in the church. And then he needs to correct the behavioral issues that were popping up as a result of the bad leadership and restore order back into this church. That was his task. Now, at the writing of 2 Timothy, what you have to realize is this is four years later. This is why context is so important. It's four years later, and and things are not less complicated for Timothy. They're actually more complicated because, because not only is he trying to work hard to get this church back on the right path, but Nero Caesar is in power in Rome, and he nearly burns the Roman city down. And like every good politician, what does he do? He blames his political enemies, who happen to be the Christians. And then widespread persecution breaks out against Christians all over the Roman Empire. It's a dangerous time now to follow Jesus. It's it's severely bad. In fact, the Apostle Paul is again arrested, but this time not on house arrest. He's thrown into a dungeon, put in chains, where he awaits his eventual execution. And And so things are very difficult for the young Pastor Timothy. Right? And, and the temptation to give up and to walk away like Joshua Harris is very strong. Who needs this, right? And so Paul, from his prison cell, think about that, from his prison cell, writes this letter to Timothy to encourage him to stand firm in the faith. That in spite of the pressure, that in spite of the culture, in spite of the danger, he writes this letter to encourage him to stand strong and not be ashamed of the gospel. Suddenly those words begin to make sense when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There was a point where the gospel could cost you your life. He encourages him not to be ashamed of the gospel and he says to willingly suffer for the cause of Christ standing against the tide of the, the culture. And and in this letter, Paul reminds Timothy of his faith. And he reminds him of the hope that he has in Christ. And he exhorts him to continue to work by lovingly and consistently handling the Word of God and then living a life that reflects the truth that's in the Word. And then in chapter 3, when you think that Paul's going to let, you know, make it, you know, go a little easier, he reminds Timothy that things are still going to continue to be difficult. That people will continue to fall away. That that teachers will continue to lead people astray. In fact, we read, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If, If there's a sobering text that the church in America needs to get used to, it is this one here. We were not... We may not be persecuted by our own government yet, but the culture certainly seeks to persecute us. The culture seeks to shut us up. The culture seeks to shame us. That is why... 
I don't know if you've noticed, but when prominent people fall away from the church, what's the first thing that they do? They march right out, and they bow the knee to Caesar and affirm the LGBT community. Do you, have you noticed that? That's, that's step one. Step two. Step one is renounce your faith. Step two, you affirm something else. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul is saying, like, I'd like to tell you, Timothy, it's going to get easier, but it's not. Right? But then, Paul seeks to strengthen Timothy by reminding him of the foundation of his faith. And he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, it's in in Timothy's darkest place and his darkest hour when the temptation to give up is the greatest to walk away. And Paul, he doesn't come and give Timothy a pep talk or a motivational speech. He doesn't write to Timothy and say, hey, keep your chin up, kid. You're going to do it. You'll be fine. He didn't fill Timothy up with primrose promises or delusions of grandeur. No. What did he do? He pointed Timothy back to the foundation of his faith, to the anchor for his soul, which is the Scriptures. And then he says to Timothy something that every Christian needs to hear and understand. He explains to Timothy why the Word of God is the foundation on which we must build our faith and our lives. And he says to him, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If there is a set of Bible verses that you need to add to your list, of verses you need to memorize and hold on to, it's this text. Because what you need to understand, this text right here, and your embracing of this text right here, is key to whether or not you will believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, or just some inspired scriptural writings. And let me tell you, there's a world of difference in those two point of views. This text right here is the key for you in the long run to embracing and holding on to the truth of God's word and persevering to the end, or you simply letting go and giving up and walking away. It's that important. In fact, let me show you why it's important. Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, many of you have grown up with different translations. Some say you know, that, that Scripture is inspired by God. Some say that it's God-breathed or given by God by inspiration. There's a lot of different ways to say that. But the Greek word here for breathed out by God, how it's translated... Is irrelevant. The, the Greek word here is theonousos. Right? It's, it's, it's one word that's comprised of two other words. And the two words are theos, which is God, and nuo, which means to blow. And, and, and so these words, when you put them together, what they're literally communicating is that God is exhaling. And, 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 and really, this is an important picture for us because what are the mechanics of speech? You begin with inhaling, and then you talk by slowly exhaling. You blow out your breath in a controlled manner, right? where you slowly vocalize words, and when you run out of air, what do you do? 
And you start the process all over again. This is the, the, the picture that Paul is painting. This scripture is the breath of God. It is not just inspired as an inspirational. It is expired as breathed out, as in spoken by God himself. That is the picture. All scripture is literally the very word of the living and true God. These are not just words that were written down by men. They're the words of God. Every single one of them. Every book, every paragraph, every sentence, every word, all of them, all of them are the very words of the living and true and one and only God. Let that sink in. This is not just some tradition you're carrying around in your book. You see, when I read the text out loud like I do before every sermon, what you are hearing through my voice is the voice of God speaking to you. And understand, it has nothing to do with me. I am but a jar of clay and a very broken one at that. When you hear the word of God being read, whether it's me or Hugh or Keith or Richard or even yourself, you are hearing the very words of the living God. This is not just a collection of ancient manuscripts, as some megapastor would like to say. This is the very breath, the very breathing out of God, breathing out his thoughts and his plans of salvation and his love for you. These, were, these words were certainly written down by men, but they were words that were inspired by God for them to write. So hear me, all scripture... All of it is the very word of God. Now some people will say, well, you know what? I don't see how you can say that. Or at least not about the New Testament. Because I mean, when Paul said this, the New Testament wasn't written yet. So I can see how you can make that case for the Old Testament. right? Because the Old Testament obviously was written, but not the New Testament. So how do you, can you say the New Testament is the word of God? or that, That's what Paul's referring to. Well, that's really easy, actually. You see, first of all, this right here is... Paul's last letter that he wrote. Which means all of the other letters that he wrote to all the other churches already were in existence. Not to mention that they also existed alongside the books of at least Mark and Luke and probably the book of Acts, if not a few other letters. Secondly, the Apostle Peter himself makes reference to Paul's writings in one of his own letters. In chapter 2 of, of of, I mean, in chapter 3 of Second Peter, he writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There is some things in them that are hard to understand. And just as a little side, just so you know, if you struggle reading through Romans, okay, Peter did too, okay? I'm saying, so if you struggle to make sense of everything that Paul says, even Peter said, hey, some of the things he writes is hard to understand, right? There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other, what? Scriptures. He very clearly says that Paul's writing are scriptures. And just before you get all technical on me, just so you know, that anytime the word that Peter uses here for scripture, anytime it's used, it's always in reference to Holy Scripture. Even Jesus uses the same word in reference to Holy Scripture. The Apostle Peter, the rock, writes, Jesus, one of his closest friends and apostles, 
Peter, by his apostolic authority, is declaring Paul's writings to be Scripture, which means Paul's letters are theanustas, included in the Word of God. And so Scripture includes all the Old and New Testaments, and they're the very words of the living God. Now, what does that mean for us then? If it is the Word of God, what is that? how does that apply to us? Well, first of all, what it means is that is it, is it the Word of God is the words of the Sovereign Lord, which means they are authoritative. The Bible has authority for all of our lives. Not just part of your life, but every single part of your life. The Bible has authority in your life as a parent, as a child. So kids, when it says, honor your father and mother, that's what it means. It has authority of how you act as a neighbor and, and, and how you treat your friends and enemies and even as members of the body of Christ. It is authority over how we worship. It is authority of how we act and behave in front of the rest of the world. It is authority in how we use our money and invest our spare time and how we plan for the future. In fact, the word of God on earth is our supreme authority. There is no higher authority here on earth than it. In fact, it was the Reformation where we got the slogan, Sola Scriptura which means simply scripture alone. Now some people think that means all I need is the Bible, I don't need the church. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we don't need the church or each other or we don't need pastors and teachers. What it means is that this is the final authority. Not our traditions, not our intuitions, not what the pastor says, not what the church leaderships believe. Our final authority is the word of God. And everything that we believe and hold on to must be tested against it. And it's not just for how we act here at the church and live, it's, it's how we treat our spouses. That's subject to the authority of, of, of God. How we raise our kids. How we treat our employers. And how we treat our employees and our co-workers, all subject to the word of God. How we handle our money. How we interact with the members of the opposite sect that we're, that we're not married to. How we respond to law enforcement and governmental agencies. How we engage our community. All of it, every part of your life is subject to the authority of the Word of God. The Word of God. Not only is it authoritative, but it's also infallible. Now infallible is just a fancy theological word that really can be translated as reliable. It's trustworthy. You can depend upon it. That you can, you can hold on to the promises that it makes. Because, because it's the word of the sovereign Lord, you can trust it. So when God says that the only way to be saved is through Christ, you better believe that that is the absolute truth. Or when Christ says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, you can trust, even in the darkest of times, that that's going to be true. And when Christ says that I will not lose any that my Father has given me, you can take it to the bank that if you're saved, that Christ has the power to keep you until the end. And when the Bible says that if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, they'll be cast in the lake of fire, but then the world comes along and says, well, a loving God wouldn't send anybody to hell. What you need to understand is you need to trust the Word of God and not the world. The word of God is infallible. You can trust everything that it says. It is reliable. It is also inerrant. Now sometimes the word inerrant gets confused with the word infallible because they're similar in meaning, but they don't mean exactly the same thing. 
Infallible means that, that what is communicated is reliable. Inerrant means what is communicated is without error. The Bible has no errors. And this right here is the dividing line for many churches and for many people who call themselves Christians. Many people have given up on the inerrancy of Scripture. In fact, some people will say, well, I believe the Bible is inspired, and I believe it's reliable for matters of faith, and I even think it's authoritative for the, for the areas that it's relevant for, for my life, but I don't believe it's inerrant. And they'll say, because the Bible makes mistakes, the Bible is full of contradictions, or, or the Bible is, you know, is in conflict with science. And so it cannot possibly be without error. Well, what you need to first of all is understand is the Bible is inerrant. And what we mean by inerrant is that the original writings, what was originally penned, was completely without error. That, that what was originally written down did not have any error whatsoever. And, but, but it is true that over time, right, that the Bible had been copied multiple times and there were errors that have popped up in many of the manuscripts. And many of those errors are misspellings of words or word order issues or punctuation issues and there are some additions and deletions and some of those things are reflected in some of the translations that are used today. So how can we say that the Bible is inerrant? Because again, the originals were still without error. But you don't even have the originals, so how can you say that? Well, that's right, we don't. But what we do have, in our day and age, we have literally thousands and tens of thousands of copies of manuscripts from all over the Roman Empire including Egypt and Judea, across multiple centuries, some of them dated within 50 years of the originals, and and through a process of textual criticism, including the original writings of the early church fathers, they compare every manuscript against each other, and it's been determined, even by critical scholars, that what we have today, as as, as a Greek Bible, by which all other translations come from, that what we have today is 99.75% accurate to what was originally written down. I want you to think about that. 99.75% accurate to what was originally written down. There is no other piece of literature in all of antiquity that's even close to that. And any variation that's unresolved in any of the texts in that tiny percentage, doesn't even affect the theology of the Bible or how you understand any particular passage of the Bible. Even the skeptical scholars who don't believe in Christ the supernatural concede that fact. Well, what about where the Bible contradicts itself? Because there's contradictions all over the Bible. Well, that simply is just a misunderstanding of the facts. There are no contradictions in the Bible. There may be apparent contradictions because people read the Bible oftentimes out of context... But every one of these apparent contradictions has been answered clearly by scholars throughout history. The Bible in no way contradicts itself. But what about how science and the Bible conflict? I mean, you can't tell me that the science and Bible, they they don't conflict. Well, that again is another misunderstanding of the issue. Because the Bible and science, they never conflict. Ever, by the way. The conflict arises not from science, but rather the interpretation of the available scientific data. Let me give you a really clear example of this. You see, the Bible, from the beginning, affirms that the universe began, that God created everything, which means that the universe is not eternal. It had a starting point. It had a beginning. There was a point in time it didn't exist, and then it existed. Does that make sense? Okay, but for centuries, all the way up until the 20th century, right? All the way up until the 20th century, 
there were most people under the banner of science declared that the Bible was an error because the common interpretation of all of the available scientific data was that the universe was eternal and had no beginning. This was the consensus view. This is not the my, this is the dominant scientific view for centuries. We're talking about from Aristotle to the 20th century. But in the 20th century, because of the work of Einstein and Hubble and Friedman and Lemaitre, the understanding of the available data changed. Right? And because that data changed, then the understanding of the data changed, and these men confirmed that the universe did not actually, was not eternal, but actually had a beginning. Just like that said. You see, there's no conflict between the Bible and science. The conflict if there is one, is with the interpretation of available data. And over time, the Bible has been proven over and over again to be reliable, and the theories of men and the interpretations of data, not quite so reliable. And so the Bible is inerrant with no errors, but it's also sufficient. This is another important one here. Which means that it's enough to lead you to the truth. The word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is sufficient to lead every person to faith and to lead every believer into truth and righteousness. Which means you don't need a religious experience to know the truth. You don't need a burning sensation in your bosom. You don't need to get chill bumps to be convinced that the truth is the truth. You don't need Eastern-style meditation. You don't need the culture around you to affirm you, to help you believe that the truth is relevant to you. The Word of God is sufficient itself for your salvation and for godliness. You don't need to stand on top of a mountain and closing your eyes and touching your fingers together, hoping that God will speak into your hearts. You just simply need to read the Word. You want to hear from God? Read the word. You want to hear him out loud? Read it out loud. The word of God is sufficient for you. You don't need a new revelation. Like that's, that's, the, that's the mantra of the culture. I just need a new revelation. I just need a fresh revelation. You just need to read the word of God. All you need is the word of God because it is sufficient. Now, now before we move on, let me be really clear here. If we individually or if we corporately give up on any of these things, the authority, infallibility, inerrancy, or sufficiency of Scripture, if we give up on anything of these at all, hear me, if we give up on them, we might as well walk away right now like Joshua Harris. We might as well just give up. And I'm not trying to like be hopeless here, but the fact of the matter is if you give up on any of those attributes, the Bible ceases to be the rock in which you build your life and your hope, and it simply becomes a lump of clay in your hands that you will fashion to your own liking. If you give up on any of these things, your faith simply becomes whatever you decide for it to be, whatever makes you feel the best, rather than the life-saving truth of God. Brothers and sisters, over time, your self-styled faith will not be enough for you. Your theology and your faith will collapse upon themselves like a house of cards, just like it did for so many, like Joshua Harris and many others. 
If you give up on the authority and the infallibility and inerrancy and the sufficiency of scriptures, you have nothing to anchor your soul to. Because ultimately, questions will lead you away from the truth. But if you hold on to those things, understanding that this is the very word of the living God, and it's authoritative for you, and it's completely reliable for you, and it is without error, and it's sufficient for you, you will be able to stand no matter what comes your way. And here's why. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, which means that it's useful or it's beneficial. Right? And scripture is useful for teaching, for reproof, and for correction and training in righteousness. Now, I've already given you a whole lot to think about, so I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I'd like to quickly just go through these so you can see what, where Paul is going. Paul says that scripture is the very word of God and it's profitable for the first of these is for teaching. If there's something that has been neglected in the Christian church that has led many people into serious error and led people falling away is the fact that many churches just don't teach. They don't teach doctrine. Right? They, they, want to, they want to keep people. They want to interest people. They want to entertain people. As it said, and I can't remember which preacher it was hundreds of years ago said, you know, I'm afraid that in our churches we are entertaining, we have, we're clowns entertaining the goats instead of pastors feeding the sheep. The reality is, is churches don't teach doctrine. And the reason for that is our, because of our postmodern culture, people have just become so reductionistic. They've become so deconstructionist. And, and they'll say things like, don't you give me your theology, just give me Jesus. I don't need to know that theology stuff. Just give me Jesus. I, don't, give me, don't give me doctrine because doctrine divides. right? Give me Jesus because Jesus unites. But the foundational problem is, and hear me on this, the foundational problem with that is, is you can't have Jesus without doctrine and theology. You can't have him. Because you do not know who Christ is until somebody teaches you who Christ is. That's doctrine and theology. You don't know what it is to follow Christ until somebody teaches you how to follow Christ. That's why you call it discipleship. You don't know what it means to repent of your sins and believe the gospel until you're taught what sin is and why you need to repent of it in the first place. Or what the gospel is and how to believe in it. You can't have Jesus without doctrine and theology. The moment you say that you believe anything about God or the Bible or the nature of man, you are practicing theology and you're displaying your doctrine. So the question isn't, do I have doctrine and theology? The question is, do I have a correct doctrine and theology? And the Bible is profitable for teaching and for developing a correct, healthy, robust theology. The Bible is, is profitable to help you to learn more about God and who He is and who you are in light of who He is and what it means to have a right relationship with Him. The church doesn't need less doctrine and theology. It needs more. In fact, it is this shallow, weak theology that led Marty Sampson to where he's at. In fact, in the same post where he declared that he was losing his faith, he says... He says, this is my soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradiction? No one talks about it. How, many, how can God be loved yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. 
Do you hear that? This veteran leader who's been a leader of a megachurch for decades. Look at his questions. These questions betray a severely shallow and anemic theology. This is what happens when churches fail to teach and reinforce the foundational truths of Scripture. This is what happens when when churches teach messages that are little more than feel-good motivational speeches. This is is the culture of Hillsong, by the way. It's been said that Hillsong's culture ultimately is Jesus is my boyfriend. Right? Because it's just a really soft, touchy-feely... And this is what happens when churches give up on expository preaching... And when churches will not deal with the difficult passages of truth in the Bible. We don't need less doctrine and theology. We need more. And the Word of God, all of it, every verse, every word is profitable for teaching that. Paul also said the Word of God is profitable for reproof. And that just simply means it's useful to point out an error. That's what that means. It's useful to point out where we get off track. Like when Jesus says, he reminds us, it's not just about adultery, it's what you're doing, it's what, you, what, what happens in here. It's the lust in your heart. So then when somebody comes to you and says, pornography is not bad, you can go, actually that's an error. It's right here. Reproof is pointing out where you're off track. Right? But then it's also profitable for correction. For setting things right. You see, reproof Reproof is pointing out when you fall off track. Correction is, hey, here's how you get back on track. And and how do we get back on track as Christians? What's the foundational way that we come back? We repent. Repentance and faith in the gospel. The word of God helps us to get back on track, to set things right, but it's also profitable for training in righteousness. Now this might seem very intimidating, but it's really a simple concept. You see, not only does the Bible point out when we get off track, not only does it give us the ability to get back on track, the Word of God trains us in righteousness for a godly life so that we can stay on track. Can you see the difference? You see, it's, it's not just about rebuking and correcting, but it's also about helping you grow and mature and walk and live in the righteousness that Christ has already given you. And so, what we, so we end up stumbling less and we fall less. The longer you walk with God and learn from Him, you, you grow in His grace, the more Christ-like you become in character. The Word of God is useful to point out where we're off track and for showing how to get back on track, but also to teach us how to stay on track. And then Paul says, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, I want you to realize that this text in context is where Paul is talking directly to Timothy. He is pointing right at his heart, and, and it certainly relates to being equipped for the ministry. right? But I want you to understand, he's talking to, to Paul, but this is something that applies to all of us. Every one of us is called to be on mission for Christ. Every one of us is called to be in ministry in some fashion. We are called to be his ambassadors. And so this text isn't something that we should skip over. This text is something we should pay attention to. In fact, Kent Hughes in his commentary points out, he says, Paul ends this section on the sufficiency of Scripture by saying, so that man may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And he says that though we cannot see it in English, Paul uses two forms of the Greek word for equip. He uses an adjective and a participle to make the point. 
Right? And the point, he says, is the man of God is super equipped by the word of God. So I don't want you to miss that. You're not just equipped by the word of God, but you are super equipped. It has the power to super equip you. It's like to equip equip you. It's, it's this idea that it's more than just equipping. It is supernaturally equipping you. And in light of that, he says, the man of God before all else then is a man of the Bible. The word of God only equips us. It super equips us. As Ken Hughes says, the man of God is before all things a man of the Bible. A woman of God is before all things a woman of the Bible. A child, a young person of God is ultimately a young person of the Bible. We are to be people of the Bible. Do you understand what this means? If we're going to stand firm in our faith against a culture that seeks to cause us to bow our knee to the sexual revolution, if we're going to stand firm in an age of tolerance for all things except Christianity, if we're going to stand firm against the onslaught of political correctness and critical theory and intersectionality, if we're going to stand firm to be a light in the darkness, if we're going to stand firm and and, and persevere to the end, proving that our faith is a true faith, that we must, before all things, be people of the Bible. We must be people of the book. We must be super-equipped by the Word of God, which means the idea is simply this. The Word of God must always be the foundation and the center part of our lives. It's is the rock on which we must build all else. It's the foundation for everything else. And hear me, without it, we have nothing. And ultimately, without it, we are nothing but a vapor. As we close, church family, and celebrate this 81st anniversary of this little church here, I want you to know that it is my mission that this little congregation out here in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, where nobody knows. In fact, we went to a church last Sunday, and she said, where are you from? I said, from, we, I'm pastor of church in Boron. She, and she introduces me to her husband. He's the pastor. And he goes, she goes, yeah, he's the pastor of a little church in a little town called Boring. I'm like, okay, it might be boring, but that's not what we are. So, But I want you to understand, right, that it's my mission that this little church out here in the middle of the desert will always be, even after I'm long gone, a people founded on and completely committed to this book, the authoritative, infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of the living and sovereign Lord. It is my mission that we will always be that. That is who we are, that is what we will be. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.